So this is where everything begins. And this is why the first thing that a child does after it really learns to crawl and begin to walk, it learns to talk. And it's very interesting that it begins to crawl and walk before it can really talk. All it does is articulate these uh, sounds that are we would call a type of gibberish which comes from Jabr ibn Hayyan because the Europeans couldn't understand him so they called everything that they couldn't understand gibberish in other words from Jabr so the child learns to walk because walking is a purposeful activity and human beings are purposeful and so somebody said and i think rightly so that god had children learn before walk before they could talk because if it wasn't that way Every time they tried to walk people would say oh you give it up you'll never get it you know so but a child just keeps doing it keeps attempting to walk and get up and it's amazing it's purposeful when you look at this thing about the tariq being on the tariq walking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he describes the servants of the Rahman ibadur rahman alladhina yamshuna 'ala al-ardi hawna they walk what is walking walking is intentional when you walk it, you you are exercising your will it's a pure act of the will and that's why children this is the first thing they do so setting out on a path is intentional you are walking and this is why one of the most amazing things about arabic because i was looking at you know the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said ar-ra'idu la yakdhibu ahluhu the, the ra'id does not lie to his own people his own family the ra'id is the one who sent out to look for water and this was very important in the sahara or the desert or arabia to look for water so the raid was the one who set out to look for water once he finds the water he becomes a dalil so setting out on the path you are setting out on literally in arabic sharia means a road to water and this is the life-giving water that god has sent down from the heavens just like he sends water from the heavens he sent revelation from heaven so this is the life-giving water so the sharia is a path to water now look at this i saw in one of sidi ahmed zarruq's book the word irtiyad and i want to look i was looking at the root of it rada yarudu rada yarudu means to walk around it's like looking for something so the raid is the one who walks around looking for something he's looking for water and the arabs say rawaidan go deliberately and also they say hu ala rod you know he's walking deliberately so rod i wonder if rod in english is from rod you know because rod is the path that you walk on and so the raid is searching for something and this is what human beings are we are searchers we're constantly search children are always looking around they're picking up rocks they're looking under rocks they're investigating constantly fakhruddin al-razi said a proof that a search for cause is fundamental to the human intellect is he said you can take a child before it is aql when it's still in that just a infant that can't even talk and he said if you hide and throw like a rock over its head and it lands in front of it it will look behind it to see where it came from it doesn't just assume it appeared into existence because this is the fitra of human beings and so when we look at the universe even a child knows that there has to be a origin of something so this is the road that we're on setting out for knowledge so where does it begin it begins with language and this is why we have to acquire language our prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was the most eloquent of people where did he go when abu bakr said to him radhiyallahu anhu that he was the most eloquent of people that spoke with the language of dad and the arabs called their tongue the laghat al dad 
you know, it's a difficult uh, letter to say, and it was unique to, to the Arabs. The Prophet said, Because I am a Qurayshi and I was raised amongst Banu Sa'd. Banu Sa'd were from the Hawazin Arabs. They, they're one of the eloquent tribes of the Arabs. So he was sent to learn the eloquence of that tribe. What's fascinating to me is he didn't say, well, that's the way God made me. No, he gave the sociological explanations for his eloquence. He said, I'm Qurayshi and I grew up amidst the most eloquent of the desert Arabs because they had a, a pure Arabic. And if you look at the hadith of Halima Sa'diya, when you look at those hadiths of hers, they're very difficult hadiths because she's using all these difficult words. All her hadiths that she related need a dictionary. And that's who the Prophet got his words from. Frost, the great American poet, said that all of life begins with discipline, and the first discipline is the acquisition of words. Montaigne, the French philosopher, said most of the world's problems are grammatical. That is not an insignificant statement. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said that I'm afraid we haven't gotten rid of God because we still believe in grammar. And one of the fascinating things to me about the Islamic civilization is they were obsessed with grammar. Our civilization gave us the first real dictionaries. The Jewish tradition got dictionaries from us. Before the Muslims, they did not have their dictionaries. The European dictionaries came very late. I mean, if you look in English, we don't have dictionaries from the time of Shakespeare. So some of the words, we have to guess at them. Uh, Johnson's dictionary, which is 18th century, it's late. And that's the first serious dictionary. And it's not anywhere near as scientific as our dictionaries. You look at something like Al-Ain, which shows up very early. Al-Khalil Al-Farahidi, which shows up very early. Eighth century, they're already writing dictionaries. So this obsession with language was because they understood that revelation is in language and they wanted to understand language. So the, the first thing that we have to acquire is language. And a lot of us use words elastically. We don't really use words with a, a sound knowledge. And the way that you define things is by learning logic. And so these were the two really, really foundational sciences in the Muslim Ummah. It was grammar and then logic. You first learned grammar and then you learned logic. And logic is the grammar of thought. So just as grammar is the logic of language. It shows you how language works. One of the really foundational texts of the late Islam, I mean, this is the last few hundred years, is a book called the Sulam. He was only 21 years old when he wrote it. Abdurrahman al-Akhdari is one of the great scholars from Baskara, which is now in uh, Algeria. And it's basically a versification of a famous text by Perfury called the Isagogi, which was a, an introduction uh, to logic. Um, but he, he says in that, that there's a difference of opinion about occupying yourself with logic, and there are three different opinions. And Ibn Salah and Imam Nawawi, he says Nawawi for the bait, they considered it prohibited. And another group said, no, you have to know it. And the soundest opinion is the one who is capable of understanding it should study it. The one who's practicing the book and the sunnah so that they can be guided to what's sound. And this is why Imam al-Ghazali was the one who introduced logic into the methodology 
of the Usuli scholars. He actually, in his famous book called Al-Mustasfa, the first 40 pages are an introduction to logic. And this is also what he introduced into the way of the Mutakallimin also. So these become very important tools in our tradition. This argument that logic is prohibited is, as far as I'm concerned, it's really something that's very dangerous because when Imam Nawawi said that it was haram, he was talking about a type of philosophy because at that time, logic was not separate from philosophy. It was actually studied as part of the peripatetic tradition. And they were worried about people going astray with this. That's why they prohibited it. It had nothing to do with the actual subject itself. It had to do with the people that were teaching it and the methodology with which it was taught. But Imam al-Ghazadi, who mastered Ibn Sina's work on logic, and then basically began to use it in his methodological approach in what's currently called Saudi Arabia, in Medina, there's a university there which was started in the 1960s to teach Islam to not just the Saudis, but internationally. But it focused on a certain school within Islam, which is the Salafi school. Now, the Salafi school originally was a Hanbali school. And there's a long history of how they became, they departed from the Madhab tradition. Because the early people, they, they're called Wahhabis. They don't like to be called Wahhabi, but these people traditionally were Hanbalis. But they had an Athari creed, and they did not like speculative kalam. They didn't like any of the Ash'ari or the Maturi tradition. But they had a great Mauritanian teacher there, Muhammad Ramin al-Shinqiti, who I, I was fortunate enough to actually have studied with his son and heard many stories about him. I lived in his house for a time when I was in Medina. So he left the Mauritanian minhaj and adopted the minhaj there. He was a brilliant scholar, and he wrote a famous tafsir called Adwal Bayan. But because he was a master of usul al-fiqh, and especially of the Usuli tradition, which is based on Imam al-Ghazali's work. Because Ibn Qudama, who wrote Rawdat al-Nadir, which is the Usuli textbook of the Hanbali school, it's basically an abridgment of Imam al-Ghazali's Usul. So to learn it without logic made it much more difficult. So he actually wrote, because they considered at that time it was prohibited to teach logic, he wrote a logic book for Medina University, but changed all the... He called it Adab al-Bahth wal-Munadhara. So he put all the logic in it, which is another science, which is related to logic. But he actually taught them logic without calling it logic because he knew how beneficial it was. So this idea that some Muslims have that they shouldn't use logic, it's just really, it's just not, uh, it's not healthy. Because part of the crisis that we're in is people aren't thinking clearly. Thinking and feeling are two ways in which human beings experience. We think things through and we feel things. And feelings are very important, but feelings should never override thinking when you're dealing with momentous matters. Feelings are much more important in things like love, like you don't have an intellectual relationship with the one you love. I mean, you could, that could be part of the relationship, but that relationship that's founded in muadda and mahabba, that's not intellectual. That's something related to the emotions, It's and it's very different. So thinking and feeling can become confused in people. And one of the things that logic teaches you is to check your feelings and to become more objective in approaching things. And also because in what's known as material logic, which looks at you know, what inheres inside thought. In material logic, you're actually taught the fallacies. So there's things, for instance, there's fallacies like collectivizing. It's, 
it's very common for people to make hasty generalizations. So if you have a bad experience, say you go to New York and you have three cab drivers all from the same country, they're immigrants, and they cheat you, all three of them, and then you just assume all people from that country are thieves, that's crazy to do that by stereotyping people. Uh, you're going to wrong people from that country that aren't cheaters or thieves. And then the other thing is to look at it that maybe they didn't cheat you. I mean, you might be wrong about that. That's uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, his approach in This is Water. But sometimes what we think is going on is not actually going on, it's in our minds. So these are aspects of our tradition that have been neglected for too long, and we really need to revive them. We need to revive the centrality of grammar. And I think part of the problem that we're suffering from in the United States is just a lack of reasoning skills to think things through and to think deeply about things. And we need these tools. And they are tools, they're instruments. And we live in what's was traditionally termed a republic, which is a representational government. And Montesquieu, the great French political scientist and philosopher, he said that different governments have fundamental virtues. And he said that the virtue of a monarchy is honor. Like they're, they're meant to be honorable. Noblesse oblige. You know, it's nobility obliges you to be honorable and noble. And then he said a democracy, like when you have a dictatorship, the fundamental component in a dictatorship is fear. You can't, you can't have a dictatorship without fear. You can't have a friendly tyrant. He has to scare people or it doesn't work. But he said that virtue or the hallmark of a republic was education. You could not have a republic without an education. And they say that Ben Franklin, when he came out of the Continental Congress, they asked him, what kind of government do we have? He said, a republic, if you can keep it, meaning that it's a tough government to hold on to because it needs educated people. And the more educated people are, the more self-governing they are. The less self-governing of people are, the more necessary it is to bring in force to control them. And this is how tyrants end up taking over. They take over when things begin to break down. And in fact, in Aristotle's, what follows a republic is what he called a democracy, which was the rule of the mob, the demos. And then the next thing that follows is a tyranny, because the mob gets out of hand and rebels constantly and tears down things. And, and then the, the tyrant comes in to set order straight. It's quite tragic. And then it begins to repeat itself, these patterns. So this is the human condition. But for us as Muslims, uh, the human condition doesn't change. The more it changes, the more it stays the same. There are cycles. These are cycles in history. And Ibn Khaldun identified them. They don't repeat themselves exactly, but they're patterns that are discernible. And that's what's important to note. But always in the midst of this, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your conditions are, you can always turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the best way to turn to him is to set out to know him through knowledge.